If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Romans chapter 2. We're going to continue in our free series in the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little story, tell you about a concerned husband who went to the family doctor because he was concerned about his wife's hearing. I'm not going to ask the husbands to raise their hands who are concerned about their wife's hearing. But he was concerned about his wife's hearing, and so he went to his family doctor and, you know, just kind of having a uh, quiet, you know, appointment, you know, didn't want to say anything to her. And he's saying, you know, I think my wife's hearing is going, and I don't, you know, I don't know how to figure it out. I think it is, but, you know, is there anything we can do to kind of figure out if, if this is the case? And the doctor said, yeah. He said, well, we'll do this. Why don't you do this? When you go home today, you know, just ask your wife a question. Get about, like, 15 feet away from her and ask her a question. And, you know, if she doesn't hear you, move a little closer and ask it again. And just find out how close you have to be for her to hear the question. And so he gets home. He says, okay, that should work. Gets home. He sees his wife in the kitchen. She's, uh, you know, preparing dinner. And so he gets about 15 feet away. And, and he says, honey, what's for dinner? Nothing. He says, okay. So he gets about five feet closer. And he says, honey, what's for dinner? No response. Nothing. He gets, you know, within five feet of her. And, and he says to her, honey, honey, what's for dinner? Nothing. He said, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> gets right behind her back, screams in her ear, honey, what is for dinner? She says, for the fourth time, it's vegetable stew. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, we think there's something wrong with other people when the fault really lies with us. We're going to talk about that this morning. Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about that. We've been in this series in the book of Romans. We saw that the first part of the book in Romans, as Pastor Brian preached, talks about the obligation to preach the gospel. The next three large segments... Uh, the end of chapter 1, what we're going to talk about today in the beginning of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 2, really get into why we need the gospel preached. Why do we need Dennis and Jenny Duncan to go to Istanbul? Why do we need to put a campus in Belmont? Why do we need the gospel preached throughout the world? These next three large sections really talk about that. And so we're going to get into that this morning. I once again encourage you, if you have not done it already, to read the entire book of Romans through in one sitting. If you have not done that, that's my homework to you. I'll extend it another week for you if you haven't done it yet. Give you one more week of grace. Uh, But uh, we are focusing in on small segments of the letter. And when you do that, you don't get the whole picture. So I want you to have that whole picture. So I encourage you, if you haven't done it, sit down in one sitting, read the entire book of Romans. It should take you about an hour, but even if it takes you two, so what? Sit down, give two hours to reading the Word of God and get through the entire book of Romans. Romans chapter 2 gets into this aspect of why we need the gospel. What we saw at the end of chapter 1 was that Paul was talking about that everyone has some knowledge of God even if they haven't had the gospel preached, and everyone has some knowledge of God that they are going to be responsible for. What we ultimately saw was that there are people that have a knowledge of God, but live their life as if God does not exist. 
I mean, they have a knowledge that there must be a creator, there must be a designer, there must have been someone, there must be something out there that did this because it's too beautiful, it's too perfect, it's too wonderful. There must be something out there, but they ultimately end up living their lives the way they want to live their lives, the way that God does not exist, as if God does not exist. And at the end of chapter one, Paul basically gives this whole list of, you know, wrong, sinful things. And he says, this is where that life ends up. This is where they end up. And many people will hear that list and perhaps uh, hear that and at times say, well, you know, that's right. Those people out there really need the gospel. There's a group of people, maybe some in here today, that would say, yes, Paul, the gospel is the power unto salvation and there are some awful people out there who need it. There are those who hear Paul say those words that there are people far from God and maybe... A little bit of self-righteous nods come across some heads. Everyone just stopped nodding. But there is something inside of us, uh, there's something inside of us at times that will feel like, yes, they need the gospel. But Paul has something to say to that because what can come about is sometimes a judgmental attitude. And so what Paul gets is some people nodding their heads about, yes, Paul, they need the gospel. And then he turns in chapter 2 and changes his tone quite a bit. And he says, but there's someone else that needs the gospel. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. We're really going to focus in on verses 1 through 5 today. uh, But I'm going to read 1 through 16 for you as a part of this segment of Scripture. Chapter 2, 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, uh, says this. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now defending them. 
This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Paul has switched his tone in a big way here from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. And he switches his tone and his audience, and he switches the audience to you who judge. That's who he's talking to at the end of chapter 2. And he's talking about those who would sit in a judgmental attitude. Those who would, at the end of chapter 1, nod their heads. Yes, Paul. Oh, there's some bad people out there, Paul. And oh, they need Jesus. So, you know, Paul, we're with you. And then Paul kind of turns, and he says, you who judge them. And he speaks to them. Here's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning. How do you know if you are in the you? How do you know? Because let's remember, Paul is not writing to unbelievers. Paul is writing a letter to a church. Paul is writing a letter to people who say that they follow and love Jesus. Paul is writing to people like you and me sitting here this morning. So while it's easy for us to say, oh, there must have been some bad people in that church of Rome, let's keep in mind, Paul is writing to a church. So some of those yous might be us. Some of those you who sit in judgment might be sitting here today. But the question is, how do you know if you are a you? How do you know if you are the you who sit in judgment? Because nobody wants to admit that. Hypocrisy is a very difficult disease to self-diagnose. Nobody wants to admit that they are not being who they say they are. Nobody wants to admit that they are being hypocritical. Nobody wants to admit that their actions don't line up with their words. Hypocrisy is a very difficult sickness to self-diagnose. So let me help you this morning. Let's see if we can figure out a little bit easier if you are a you or if me are a you or whatever the right grammar is there. But the question is, who is the you who judge? So let me give you three kind of criteria that Paul kind of talks about. Three things to watch out for or to watch for that might help you determine, might help me determine, if we are amidst the people that Paul is talking to, amidst the Christian believers that Paul is writing to, that says, you who judge. Because, again, what's happening in this section is by the time we're going to get to chapter 3, verse 23, there will not be a single person who can stand righteous before God. So this section of scripture can be difficult to hear, which again is why I ask you to read the whole letter. But here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, you think you're righteous before God, you're not. You think you're righteous before God, you're not. You think you're righteous before God, you're not. He's trying to address every single argument and every single person who might think that their righteousness in their life might make them able to stand before God. And by the time we'll get to chapter 3, verse 23, Paul will say there are none righteous, not one. And so this morning, you who judge. So let's figure out if you are a you or if me is a you. Three things to watch out for to to distinguish if you are in the category of you who judge. The first one is this. Watch your pronouns. Watch your pronouns. Your pronouns can betray you. Look at the end of chapter 1. 
Chapter 1, verse 32, here's how Paul ends the chapter. Although they know God's righteous decree and those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Third person, they, those people out there. Oh, we're comfortable talking about that. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. The first word is you. Therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. Paul switches up the pronouns and he suddenly is talking to these people and it's a little bit surprising because I think what Paul did is you had some people that were nodding their head. That's right, Paul. Oh, preach it, Paul. Oh, they need it, Paul. That's right. You go get them, Paul. And then he does something like the prophet Nathan does in the Old Testament when he's talking to King David. If you don't know the story, King David had committed an atrocious sin against a woman and her husband. He had committed adultery with this woman and had her husband killed. And Nathan was called by God to confront him, but confronting a king is treacherous business. And it's uh, fearsome ground to tread. So Nathan... Uh, inspired by God, came up with a clever story to confront King David. And he told him this story about a rich man who had all kinds of animals and all kinds of wealth. And then he said there was also a poor man who had one little lamb, and that's all he had, and he loved this little lamb. He, he was like a part of the family. And then the rich man one day had a guest come to his house, and he wanted to entertain him. But rather than killing one of his own animals from all his wealth, he went and took the poor man's lamb, and he stole it from him. And he took it and slaughtered it for his guests. And David, King David, thinking this was a real story, gets upset and gets mad. And he says, who is this man? He deserves to be punished. And the king's wrath is going to come down on him. And Nathan says, you are the man. And I feel like that's what Paul did here. I feel like Paul said, all this stuff is out there, ruthlessness and godlessness and selfishness and all this stuff. And people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he turns around in chapter two and says, you, you will not escape judgment either. And he switched it up. It's like a, it's like a modern day a crime investigation where the police, you know, call in, call in someone who thinks they're going in as a witness, And they think they're going in and just answering questions. They're in that room that I don't know if that room really exists, but in TV it always does, where they get that room with the mirror and, you know, the the one light and and the cup of coffee so they can steal his fingerprints off it. You know, I know all the tricks. Never putting my, never getting a drink if I'm in that room. (laughs) Like they don't have my fingerprints. But, you know, they're in that room and the person's there and they're, you know, bantering back and forth and asking questions and answering questions. And all of a sudden, the tables start to turn and, you know, the detective asks a question like, and where were you on this night at such and such a time, at such and such a place? And all of a sudden, the person starts to squirm a little. And they start to, well, what are you asking me for? And then that question always comes up, do I need a lawyer? And then the cop always responds, I don't know, do you need a lawyer? And then the person realizes they have not been called in just to be a casual witness, but because they are a prime suspect. And I, and I think this is the feeling I get from Paul as he starts chapter 2. You, therefore, you are the ones here who will not escape judgment. Watch your pronouns. If we're always talking about them and we're always talking about they are the ones that need the gospel, we may be in the you 
we may be a little self-confident and self-righteous. Our pronouns can betray us. Give you another pronoun. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. There's a different pronoun there. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Watch your pronouns, because if you get to that verse, and in your mind it kind of goes, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom you are the worst. They are the worst. We might be in that category of you who judge. Paul says of himself, I am the worst. I am the worst. Is sin something those people out there do? At the end of the list of wrongs in chapter 1, do you have a feeling of at least while I'm not one of them? Or yay, get them, Paul. If so, you might be one of the people Paul is talking to in chapter 2. Second, second criteria, so watch your pronouns. The second criteria is watch your application of grace. Watch your application of grace. Who gets grace? Who receives grace? When I accuse others in their actions and excuse my own similar actions, I am in danger of being these people who Paul is talking to. And he says it right in this verse. He says, because you who pass judgment do the same things. This is, we do this all the time. We don't even realize it, but it's so easy for us. Maybe this happened to you this week. Somebody came in late to work. And you've been at your desk for 45 minutes. And you've been working away. And you've been hard at work. And you've been getting stuff done. And they just walk in whistling, saying hi to everybody. And go and sit down at their desk. And you are just burning up. What are they doing? They were supposed to be here 45 minutes. I hope the boss notices. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something. I can't believe this. What's wrong with them? But you forget that a week ago... You know, your, your child got sick and the dog needed to be walked and there was an accident on the way to work and traffic was backed up and you walked in 45 minutes late. But you had a reason. So often it's so easy for us to accuse others why we excuse ourselves. And Paul says this is exactly what you're doing. You're condemning someone else for something you yourself are doing as well. John Stott puts it this way. He says, he says this, John Stott says, Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it's all ours rather than theirs. This device, Stott says, enables us to simultaneously retain our sin and our self-respect. It is a convenient arrangement, but also slick and sick. It's something that comes easy for us as humans. We can accuse others and excuse ourselves to watch out who grace goes to. To bring this out a little further, Paul asks two questions. In verses 3 and 4, 
He says in verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? In other words, what he's saying is you're right in thinking that people who do these things are under God's judgment and God's wrath. You're right in doing that. But what about what you do? What about what you do? We are much more likely to excuse our own behavior as I was tired and look at someone else and say they are lazy. And Paul's saying, that's what's going on here. You're accusing others, but excusing yourself. Here's how it might look in practicality. You're watching, you sit down in front of a TV one night, turn on the 10 o'clock news, and you're watching the news, and maybe there's a story about a politician who all of a sudden comes out in some papers. It's papers coming from everywhere these days, right? Panama Papers and Snowden Papers. Papers coming from everywhere. So, so it comes out in some papers that this politician all of a sudden had an affair, and his life is just blowing up. And everything, you know, everything that he had going is just falling apart. And uh, you didn't agree with his views anyway, you know, and so you're watching it, you're interested in this story. And, and uh, they said what the person said, they're, they're going to resign, they're going to spend some time focusing on their family, and they're going to, you know, thank you everyone for respecting our privacy and everything else that goes on in that moment. And, and you watch that, and you think, how could that happen? You know, here I am. I've, uh, you know, how could, how could that happen? This person is in the public spotlight. This person, you know, how could they allow that to happen in their life? What is this world coming to? Then the news goes to commercial and you flip the channels to find something else and you fall upon a movie channel. And you fall upon a movie and it catches your attention. There's a, there's a uh, woman there with almost no clothing on seducing a man. And you're watching it and the new, you never go back to the news. And here's what the reality is. What's the connection? What's the connection? Jesus said, when you lust after a person, it's like committing adultery in your heart. We pass judgment on the politician, but we excuse our behavior as simply entertainment. Or we think, I would never act on anything like that. Or we think, well, God doesn't really care about this. To that, Paul would simply ask, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Just a question he asks. We excuse our behavior and accuse others. Do you think you will place, escape God's judgment? Or maybe it's not a politician. Maybe it's the professional athlete who was successful and had a great life, had a great home, had a beautiful wife and kids and everything else. And you look, you look at it from the outside and everything looks great, but then something happens and everything blows up in their face and you have pity upon them. But what you don't admit is that in, in secretly you are envying them. And Paul just asks, because envy was in that list he gave at the end of chapter 1. Paul just asks, do you think you will escape God's judgment? You who pass judgment on others and yet do the same thing? So that's the first question he asked. The second question he asked to clarify this is in verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. The second question is, do you show contempt for God's kindness? Let 
might look at this and wonder what Paul is getting at. But what he's saying here, it allows us to maybe say, okay, maybe you realize that things in our life are not good, things that God would call sin, but instead of recognizing it and repenting of it, you kind of just lean upon God's love and patience. Say, oh, God will forgive me for this. I remember one of the one of the worst one of the worst movies. I think I, it's not one of the worst movies, but it was a terrible movie. And I'm not even going to tell you the name of it, but I remember it because we saw it on our first date, Wendy and I. And I don't remember anything about the movie because I was with Wendy on the first date, <laughs> which is good, right? Except I remember one line from the movie, the one, and it's the last line from the movie. It was the last line from this movie. It was, it was about these school kids and, and growing up in this, you know, coming of age movie or whatever. And the last line of the movie, this, I think it was, uh, uh, it was about Catholic school or something like that. The last line of the movie was a girl saying, forgive me, Father, for what I am about to do. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Presuming upon the grace of God? Do you show contempt for God by presuming upon his grace, by presuming that his love will be there? This type of thinking leads some people to discount the judgment of God altogether. And many people will deny that there's even a real hell because they say, how could a loving God do that? And what Paul is saying is that, look, don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't assume just because judgment has not come that it's never coming. Peter says it too. He said, look, the reason God has delayed his judgment is so that many more will come to him. He's allowing for that to take place. And Paul says his kindness is here for repentance. It's kindness is here so we can repent. So you might look at the world around us and say, look at the way people are living. It doesn't seem like anything bad happens to them. Look, they don't live according to the Bible. They don't live according to what you say, God, and nothing seems to be happening to them. And so it must be okay. Or maybe there's a different interpretation. Or maybe Paul's right and God is delaying his judgment and the kindness is there so that we would repent. His kindness is there so that we would repent. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. It's kind of like the guy that jumped out of the 50-story building without a parachute. You know, he passes the 30th story, and some guy says, how's it going? And he says, good so far. <laughs> judgment, den- judgment delayed is not judgment denied. So Paul says, his kindness is there for Repentance not to just ignore your sin. So watch who you give grace to. If you give all the grace to to yourself, but judgment to others, it may be that you are in the you who judge. Finally, third one, watch yourself. Watch yourself. And by that, I mean this. Do we see ourselves as bad and just as much in need of God's grace as anyone else Or do we view ourselves in somehow not as much in need of God's grace as other people? Watch yourself. See, it's not really about looking at them out there and saying they need God's grace. And it's not really about them out there looking at maybe you and saying you're being a hypocrite and that's worse than me. It's about all of us together saying we all need God's grace. And we are in need of it in our lives. Can you really sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like who? Like me. 
like me. Watch yourself. Paul is saying, look, these things that you are com- com- you know, saying that other people do, your own life, you have them in you. You are just as in need of God's grace as anyone else. It says in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're stirring up wrath against yourself. You're in need of it. Saved a wretch like me. We sing that song and we think it's so beautiful, but do we really believe that God not only saved us, but that we without him are wretched? Or one of my favorite songs, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a stanza in there that says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Is it only them out there who are prone to wander? Or am I prone to wander? Or is it me that but for the grace of God, I am wretched and lost I am under God's judgment and wrath. A man named D.T. Niles put it this way, and I think it's worth repeating. He said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. We don't like to look at ourselves in that way, but I think that's really a biblical way of seeing it. We're no better than anyone else, and just because you have experienced and have knowledge of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ does not make us any better than any other person who has yet to receive. That's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what we are. That's our condition. We are all in need. So watch yourself. Watch yourself. Look at your own life. Do you see yourself as someone who is just as much in need of God's grace as anyone else? So what do you do if you're caught in this? What do you do if you've just listened to these three things and you said, you know what, I think I might be in the you who judge. I might be in the you who judge. What should you do? What should I do? Well, the simple thing is just repent. Like Paul says, the kindness of God is there for you to repent. Turn from your ways. We'll have a opportunity in just a moment for you to pray and ask God to say, God, that's me. I have been judgmental towards other people. I have so often been accusative to others and excused myself, and I am in need of God's grace, and so we are to repent. See, we are always in danger of underrepresenting either the love or the holiness of God. Track with me here for a second. We are always in danger. Here's the danger. We're always in danger of underrepresenting either the love or the holiness of God. And I think most of us have a bent one way or the other. And here's what we think. We think that someone else is overrepresenting the love or the holiness of God. We think that someone else, oh, you are so you just you're overrepresenting the love of God. You just don't take his holiness. You, you, know, you, don't, you, you don't take it seriously, but here's what the Bible says. The Bible says God is love and God is holy. Two different points. It says that. God is love and God is holy. You can never overrepresent the love of God. 
You can never overrepresent how great and awesome God's love is for those who sin, for those who spit in his face, for those Jesus on a cross would say, forgive them for they know not what they do. You and I can never overrepresent the love of God. We can't even grasp it, comprehend it, or understand it. But you might underrepresent the holiness of God. You might, in your effort to represent the love of God, fail to remember that God is also a holy God who judges. You and I can't judge. That's what we just read in the Bible, but God can and does. God is the one who's without sin. Or you might look at someone and say, you are over-representing the holiness of God, but you can never over-represent the holiness of God. God is a holy God. God is pure and perfect and untainted by anything evil, any sin. You can never over-represent the holiness of God. We cannot even comprehend how holy God is. But you can't underrepresent the love of God. And you might want at times and be tempted at times to apply the holiness of God to others and the love of God to ourselves. And that's what I think Paul's getting at here. You who judge, you want to apply God's holiness to someone else. God judge is going to judge those people. But you want to apply God's love to you. His long-lasting, his patience, all of that. They're both true. What Paul is saying is that we often want God to be holy towards others and loving towards us. And the truth is he is both holy and loving towards both us and them. And so we have to keep that in mind. Stott, once again, says we cheapen the gospel if we represent it as a deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs instead of a rescue from the coming wrath. When I look at God saving me, if I think, oh, he just made my life so happy and he just made my life so, and I no longer have guilt and oh God, this is so good. Instead of saying, God has saved me from the condemnation that I deserve. Then I misunderstand my true state of where I am. I misunderstand my true state of where I am. Keller puts it this way. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, puts it this way. He says, talking about this passage, he says, there, is massive, there are massive external differences between irreligious people who may loudly denounce and subvert traditional moral norms and very moral, religious, Bible-believing people who rely on their ethical goodness for their standing with God. There are massive external differences between those two people, and you and I see it. Yet Keller says, Paul says both are functioning as their own spiritual saviors, revealing that the internal differences are slight. In other words, the irreligious person that we saw in chapter one is basically saying, look, I don't need you, God. I don't need you, God, because I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and I am going to handle the consequences, and ultimately, I'm going to save myself. I don't need you, God. The person at the beginning of chapter two is the religious person who has all the externals, all the morals. Their life looks good on the outside. And Paul is saying, look, they might also be saying, 
I don't need you, God, because I'm a moral, good person. And then my life, we wouldn't, they wouldn't say that out loud, but live their life in such a way that it looks that way. Both are acting, Keller says, as their own savior. Both are trying to save themselves apart from the grace of God. On the external, very different. Internally, slight difference. Both are in need of Christ and his gospel. Christ said it too, just like Paul. Jesus didn't much like judgmental religious people either. Jesus warned against condemning others. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now I'll grant it that there are those who are outside the church who will sometimes use the scripture against you to discern sin and to point out when there's places in life that aren't right and aren't moral. And look, that discernment is is right and at times necessary. And, and when you're talking to people, we are not called to condone sin anywhere. And so there are people outside the church who will say, aren't you not supposed to judge? Don't judge. Or, or you too will be judged. Isn't that what the Bible says? And I'll grant it that sometimes that argument is misused. But it also should at least, we should at least remember that Jesus applied that argument to religious people. And we need to at least ask ourselves, are we misusing? And here's the difference. Are we condemning? people. Most of us know John 3.16, or many people know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Powerful verse, the gospel in one small spot. A lot of people forget John 3.17, the very next verse. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. A lot of us are comfortable with John 3.16, but we, John 3.17, here's what Paul's talking about. Jesus himself didn't come in the world to condemn the world. And yet you who sit in judgment are condemning people. We are not called to condone sin, but we are also not called to condemn people. We are not called to condone sin. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. He's not letting anyone off the hook. But we are also not called to condemn people. And so Paul's saying, you who judge. And we have to ask ourselves, is that us? Are we a religious person who accuses others and excuses ourselves? As followers of Jesus Christ, we're not to point at others. We're to point others to Christ. One final quote by Keller. He says, when a Christian sees a prostitute, sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, refugees, he knows that he's looking in a mirror. Perhaps the Christian spent all of his life as a respectable middle-class person. No matter. He thinks, spiritually, I was just like these people. Though physically and socially, I never was where they are now. They are outcasts. I was an outcast. The externals might look very different, but internally we all must see ourselves in someone who, apart from the gospel, is completely lost. Apart from the gospel, no matter what the differences may look like in this world, are completely on the same footing as anyone else. And we need to be aware of that in our lives. Um, I'll close with this. Uh, Alana was mentioning the... um, 
generations, and I love this theme for the Mother's Day tea, the, the passing down, the wisdom for the generations, and, and we need that so much in our world. And I've said that before, and I'll continue to say that. Those of you who are older and here, pass on, find some younger people to pour into, pass on what's been poured into you. Um, and I remember one of the uh, women in our church, uh, Elaine Driscoll's mom, Evie Kiriakis, some of you might remember her. Evie used to sit on the front row right over here. She's about four foot nothing, and she would just sit there, and Evie was great because she would amen you. She would, oh, yeah. She would say, oh, pastor, yeah. And one thing Evie would say a lot when you're preaching, she would say, oh, that's me. That's me. And you would just read a verse about, like, prostitutes and debauchery and, you know, all this stuff. And everyone would be, that's me. And I'd be like, when was that you? But here's what she got. It is me. On the outside, it might look different. But on the inside, we all have the same need for Jesus Christ. We all have the same need. For the gospel. C.S. Lewis, when he first came to Christ, he's talking about being in a worship service. He says, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth rate poems set to sixth rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. C.S. Lewis, Oxford educated, Cambridge professor, sit in church, comes to Christ, almost pulled into following Christ by his intellect and following what he knew to be true and then finds himself in church, worshiping to what he thinks is lousy music and lousy words worshiping beside people who probably did just finish up all kinds of different jobs, people he normally wouldn't come into contact with, and then you realize that these saints, worshiping and loving and knowing their God, that you're not worthy just to clean off their boots. And that'll take you right, cut you right down. And that's what Paul's saying. You who judge. You who judge. Do you think you're going to escape judgment by judging others and doing the same thing? Do you think God's going to excuse you? So as we close out this service this morning, maybe you're in here, maybe you're in the you who judge. Maybe you're in here and you say, you know what, Pastor Rick, listening to this and applying these three things to my life, there are times in my life where I have felt judgmental towards other people where I have accused them and excused myself, then this morning is your moment to repent. That kindness of God that's been extended to you is here so that you can at this moment, at this point, turn to God and say, God, I have been a hypocrite. Don't be afraid to say it out loud because he already knows. God, I have been a hypocrite. 
God, I need you to forgive me. I need you to help me to live and see people with the eyes that you do, to love, to apply the grace to others that I so freely apply to my life. God, I need you to do that. God, forgive me. And Lord, help me to turn to you, see people the way you do. Another group in here today, maybe you're in here and you say, you, I've been the one who have been judged. I'm in here and I've felt the people. I'll point them out for you, pastor. In that moment, don't we become the you who judge? In that moment, aren't we putting ourselves in the place of the person who feels fit to be the one who judges someone else's actions? If that's your case, then you also, here's an opportunity to repent. Say, God, cleanse my heart. Fill me with forgiveness and not bitterness. Fill me with grace and love for those who may not have treated me in that way. And let us follow Christ together, recognizing that we all have an equal need for the gospel. See, this last part of the passage, we didn't get into it a lot. Paul goes into, you know, your works, everyone's going to receive for their works. What all Paul is saying is this, we'll all be, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, our works will condemn us, but our salvation in faith is what will save us. Apart from the gospel, we all have enough knowledge to condemn us, but we need the gospel to save us. Would you pray with me? Father, in reality, we are a room full of hypocrites. In reality, Lord, there have been times in all of our lives where we have not been the people that we want to be. We have not been the people that maybe people think we are. And yet, Lord, we are saved by your grace and we are grateful for your forgiveness. And we are grateful that though we may stumble and fall, that we stumble and fall upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would seek our hearts, that you would search our hearts. And if there be any wickedness within us, because truly, Lord, even after this message, it is so difficult to self-diagnose when we have hypocrisy in our hearts and in our lives. And people are often too kind to point it out to us. And so we need your Holy Spirit to point it out in our life. We need your Holy Spirit to search our heart. We need your Holy Spirit to show us those places in our lives and in our hearts where, God, we need you. And we need just to turn and repent in our own hearts and our own life to live authentically before you authentically before our God with nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose. Just an authentic life lived before our God. Father, I pray that you would take away the judgmental spirit that often creeps into our hearts and our lives. That we would take no pleasure in pointing fingers, but we would, in all of our effort, do everything to point people to Christ. To point them to Him who can save. 
point them to him who can redeem and forgive. Lord, I'm reminded of that Samaritan woman at the well who ran and told her whole village, come, meet a man. Come meet a man who told me everything about me. Come meet a man who talked to me. Come meet a man. Lord, may we have that same attitude towards those who don't know you. Come. Come meet Jesus. Come meet a man who will love you, forgive you. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is God. But he is good. Come meet a man. Father, give us that kind of heart as a church and as individuals. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.